Hebrews chapter 4. Let's go down to verse number 1, just the first verse. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse number 1 says, Let us therefore fear, lest a promise being left us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. Let's pray, and then we'll get into this. Lord, I pray that you would help us. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would open our eyes. Uh, I know, Holy Spirit, you have written these scriptures. You inspired them, so I pray that you would help us to understand them. I pray that you would give conviction where there needs to be conviction, give comfort where there needs to be comfort, and would you just bless in, um, in this time. I pray that we would obey everything that you show us in these moments, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, I want to uh, kind of start off by telling you about something. My, um, you know, uh, <clears throat> I'm probably just like you in this. My parents certainly were not perfect, but I'll tell you one thing about my dad. One thing that my dad was good on was my dad was good at keeping promises. Now, some of you, I'll tell you, I've, I've watched, I, I was a youth pastor for, uh, for several years, and there were some people who, um, uh, you know, some people in my youth group, they'd be like, oh yeah, my parents promised me that we're going to do this. When their tax return comes in, they're gonna, we're going to do this, and they're going to give me this and give me this. And I'm just thinking, I know your parents, and I'm pretty sure they lied to you. I mean, it was sad, um, because some people are no good at promises. How many of you know someone who never keeps their promises? Raise your hand. Yeah, okay. How many of you know someone who does? Someone who does. Maybe that is your parents too. And so I remember my dad, he made a promise. There was this, uh, this coffee mug he had that had a picture of a skyscraper on there. And I was a little kid. And I remember that skyscraper on that cup. I always told my dad, Dad, I want to go, I want to go to that. I want to go see that skyscraper because it's really high up in the sky. My dad promised me one day we're going to go. One day we're going to go. And I'd see him pull out the mug. I'd ask him, it's, you know, can we go soon? Well, not soon. We're going to go. One day we will go. And you know what was cool is one day we did. And I was a little kid going up in this skyscraper, looking out the window and seeing all this stuff down below. It was really, really awesome. And, and you know, because my, you know, my dad, uh, when he made a promise, <clears throat> it was important to him that he kept his promise. You know, what's interesting is here in Hebrews chapter four, actually, I should say this, all throughout the scriptures, God has promises all over the Bible uh, that he has made. Promises, some of which were uh, some of which were just for maybe people of that time, but many of which are for us today. And one, of the promise, one of the promises he has in chapter four, verse one, he says, he has a promise of rest. A promise of rest. Now, what we're gonna do here today is we're gonna look at something that actually, uh, the, uh, chapter, uh, chapter four, verse number, it's like verse 11 or something like that, describes this as rest for the people of God. So this, this afternoon, we're gonna look simply at rest for the people of God. So let's start with this. If we're gonna understand why, you know, why does God say there's a promise of rest, let's ask ourselves first, what is this rest? Can we put a definition on it? Well, let's at least notice something. It says, and um, it, it must be important because verse one says, let us therefore fear lest a promise being left of us of entering into his rest. So in other words, God says this, if you don't get to experience my rest, he says, you better be afraid. Now that's, that's significant. That tells me this, whatever this rest is, I want in on it, okay? And uh, so I, I want in on it. So it must be important. It's essential. But you notice something is apparently this rest is not something that is automatic. 
Because it's addressed to Christians here in this passage, and he says, some of you are going to experience God's rest, and some of you are not going to get to experience God's rest. He says, you better fear if you do not. And again, he's talking here to Christians. But notice he says, this is, verse number one, he says, his rest. In other words, this is something supernatural that God gives to people. So what is this rest? Okay, let me give you what I think would be probably a, a concise and maybe a helpful definition of this word rest, and we'll kind of uh, develop it and see it uh, developed here in the passage, okay? The word rest, as it's used here in this passage, and in the, uh, the verses kind of previous and after it, it's the idea, rest is a picture of two things, victory and blessing in the Christian's life. Okay, the rest here that's described, it's not referring to you going and, uh, going and sitting in a hammock for half the afternoon somewhere warm, okay? The picture of rest here, it's the idea of victory and blessing in a Christian's life. Hey, do you wanna see God bless you and use you? I think some of you do. You wanna see victory in your life in certain areas of your life, uh, me, me too. And so God says, he gives this picture of re this rest. He says it's a picture of victory and blessing. How so? Well, let's first kind of understand where we're at. As if you read back into chapter three in verses eight and nine, it says this, harden not your hearts as in the provocation in the day of temptation in the wilderness when your fathers tempted me, proved me, and saw my works 40 years. So what he does here is the writer of Hebrews says uh, to help us understand this idea of rest, he brings up an old, Old Testament Bible story of something that happened several thousand years earlier, and it's event, an event that took place at a place called Kadesh Barnea. Now you might uh, uh, might say, "Boy, I can barely, you know, I can barely say Charlotte." You know <laughs> what? What Kadesh Barnea? Where in the world is that supposed to be? Okay, so, so what had happened is the nation of Israel had been, uh, the entire nation, they had been slaves un, in Egypt underneath the Egyptians for over 400 years, and God had delivered them with a mighty hand. God sent plagues that, had, um, uh, that finally were able to break Pharaoh's heart. He allowed the nation of Israel to leave. As soon as he left, let the, the, the Israelites leave uh, the country of Egypt, he immediately regretted it, chased after them. God split the Red Sea wide open so that his people could cross through on dry ground, and once his people had crossed, through the, the, uh, the armies of the Egyptians that were chasing behind them. They came into that same spot and the waters collapsed on top of them. And that was, by the way, that is, I believe it's the event that is most referred to in the Bible is the crossing of the Red Sea. And so God had a plan. God had not just brought his people out of Egypt just to say, hey, there you go, got you out of slavery. But God also said, I'm going to place you into a promised land. And it's going to be a place, it is going to be a spot that you are going to love. And so he brings the people through the wilderness, and it takes time to move, like two million people. And so they come finally, they come to a, a city called Kadesh Barnea, and they're getting ready. They're knocking on the door to come inside of Canaan. And so what they did was they sent out 12 spies. Y'all ever in Sunday school sing the song, 12 spies went into Canaan, 10 were bad and two were good. How many of you are totally uncoordinated and could never do that? Anyone like that? Yeah, <laughs> 10 were bad and two were good. Then you do it fa faster. Okay, yeah, and so, um, uh, so that's the song. That song is taken from this event that took place at Kadesh Barnea. What happened at Kadesh Barnea? 12 spies were sent to the land of Canaan. They said, check it out, see what's out there. We gotta know before we try to, uh, this um, conquest. And so when the spies came back, oh, they gave a great report. They said, oh my goodness, there's so much wonderful stuff. 
There's, you know, it's a land flowing. They described it as a land flowing with milk and honey. There's just so much stuff. There's prosperity. There's land. It's a wonderful place. However, 10 of the spies said, but we're never going to be able to conquer it. Oh, it's just awful. There's all these, there's all these nations there. There's the Hittites. There's the Amorites. There's the Jebusites. There's the other Canaanites and all the other, you know, kind of like um, parasites and mosquito bites that were around the nation of Canaan. And, uh, and so they said, oh, there's all these people out there. There's no way that we could conquer them. We're like grasshoppers compared to them. If we we tried to fight them in battle. We never get, there's no way that we can fight and win and get the land of Canaan. So that's 10 of the spies. And two spies are over here, Joshua and Caleb. Can you just imagine them listening to these guys like whimper and cry? And these, uh, and these two spies listening to this and then it's their turn to talk and they say, um, um, we have a God. And our God said we could have the land. So it's not like we have to worry about it. Let's go take it, because God's on our side. But the 10 spies over here were like, no, there's just no way. It's never going to happen. You know what's sad is that the people believed the 10 spies, which is especially, it's sad because God had promised that after, 40, after they had come out of 400 years being in Egypt of this slavery, God was going to establish his people, can we say this, in a land of rest. It was a place, verse 11, he, said, he describes that for, the, um, for these people, it was going that Canaan was Israel's land of rest. Now, of course, um, you might say, how could it be a land of rest? Because I'll tell you this, the land of rest, it wasn't a place where you just kind of could walk across the border and just, all right, well, let's set up stakes here and let's just kind of camp out. It's going to be great. No, the land of rest, Canaan, it was a land of battles. It was a land of sweat. It was a land of pressure. It was a land of opposition. It was a land of difficulty. But can I tell you this? The land of Canaan, with all of its battles, pressure, opposition, and difficulties, the land of Canaan was a land of rest because victory was assured. God had said, you will have that land. In Joshua chapter one, verse three, God made it absolutely clear. He said, wherever you walk, he said, it is yours. They weren't even there yet. And in essence, God always said, it's yours. It is your possession as if you already have the deed to the land. So he says, go in there and do the conquering because victory was assured. It'd almost be like if, um, how many of you ever played on a sports team before? You played on a sports team? It'd almost be like, this would be kind of weird. But imagine if God showed up to your sports, sports team in the locker room one day, that'd be weird, and uh, said, guess what? You are going to win the championship this year. I know, you'd be like, oh yeah. But then you look around you and you're like, oh, but wait a minute, God, look what we have for help, <laughs> you know? I mean, I mean, he can't even see the ball. How in the world is he gonna ever catch it, you know? And, uh, and so, but you know what? You can always go out. is If you, God truly did that, showed up and promised you're gonna win the championship this year, hey, you could go forward and you could go out there and play those games no matter who your teammates were because what? You had God's promise that there's gonna be victory. And even if all of a sudden you started having a losing streak, guess what? You could still ride on the, re on the promise that God had said you're going to have victory. Can I tell you something, folks? The fact that you know, God had told Israel, he said, this is gonna be your land of rest because it is going to be, you are going to experience victory wherever you march throughout this land. Can I tell you something, young people? God wants you to be experiencing victory as well. Victory in what? Well, I'd say a thing specifically in mind is, how about victory over temptation? Because some of you are struggling bad with some kind of sin in your life. And there's some sinful habits that just 
overwhelm you. And there may be some that it just seems, if it's a new day, this is that I am just going to struggle and just gonna fall all over my face. Can I tell you something? God wants you to experience his rest. He wants you to experience victory. Because guys, if all you're doing, if all you're ever happening is that you're regularly always, always, always just, it seems like it's never ending. You're just always a liar and you lie about everything. Guess what? You're not experiencing the land of rest. If you're someone who is constantly ever lusting, 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 and there never seems to be ever any, ever any victory, you're not in the land of rest. If you're the one that's always keeping bad friends and you can never seem to get away from these bad friends, yet you go with them, you do wrong things with them, you're not in the land of rest. Maybe you've got media, whether it's something you listen to, whether it's something you watch, and you're just indulging in things that you know are filth and there just seems to be no end to it, you're not in the land of rest because God wants you to start experiencing victory in your life. Just like the Israelites, that, that land of rest, that land of Canaan, it was rest because they would see constant victory, but the land of rest is not just a land of victory, but it's also a land of blessing. Because God had said, when I put you into that promised land, when you get there, God said, this is where I am going to bless you. Now, yes, of course, God took care of them even when they were in the wilderness, but God said there was something special about the land of rest that this is where he was going to bless his people. You know, as I look out in this room today, I, I, I know I'm looking at teenagers. I know some of you in this room, you could care less about anything that's been going on today. I get it. But I'll tell you what, I'm looking out and I know there's a lot of y'all out there that you want God to use you. And you want God to do something with you and not just do something with you, you want God to do something big. And it's gonna be a while because you're still a teenager, but you want God to do something big with you and to use you in an incredible way and to bless you in that way. Hey, that's where God wants you to be. He wants you to get to experience victory and blessing because this promised land was the specific place where God said, this is where I'm going to bless my people. So now that we, can, now that we know what is this rest God's talking about, what's well, the idea of experiencing victory and blessing in the Christian's life. That's what it is. Okay, now that we know what it is, let's ask this. How do we get there? Right, fair enough question. How do we experience this victory and blessing in our lives? Well, look at verse number three. Verse number three says, Hebrews four, verse three says, for we which have, what's the next word? Believed. Oh, you, uh, you uh, ABC students, check this. You, you were here in chapel yesterday. This is gonna make a lot of sense because of what we talked about in chapel yesterday. It says, for we which have believed do enter into rest. Now, sometimes people look at it and say, oh, so does this mean that, uh, like, those who believe, so if you get saved, that mean, does that mean that the, everyone who's saved gets rest? Well, no, 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 this is not, I would say this is not talking about salvation. Why? Because for one thing, he says this rest is for the people of God. In, in chapter four, verse 11, he says, it's only for the people of God. It also says that you can fall from rest, and we know that you can't lose your salvation. And even throughout this passage, he's addressing multiple times, he says, he's addressing brethren. He's assuming every person who he's writing to is already saved. So this rest is something that does not, it does, it's not something that automatically comes to you when you're saved. It is something that comes when you, it says in verse three, when you believe. Okay. So what does the word believe mean? Oh, this is simple, guys. This is really simple. The word believe is a word that simply means to trust or to depend. 
to simply trust or to depend. So the so the so look at the verse three again. Maybe put those insert those words in there. God says, "For we which have trusted or depended are the ones who enter into God's rest." So in essence, what God says is this: You want to see victory in your life? You want God to bless you and use you? He says, "You have got to depend on me." You gotta stop depending on yourself. You wanna see victory? Guess what? Victory does not come from you. Seeing God do great things is not something that you have within your talent set and your skill set. That's something that God gives. It's something that comes from God. Case in point, how about Israel? They're entering into this promised land. Now, of course, there was the failure at Kadesh Barnea, but many, after 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, they're knocking on the door again, getting ready to come into the promised land. Joshua is now in charge, and he's getting ready to go, you know, he's leading the people into the promised land, and the very first city that they come upon that they're gonna have to conquer as they come into the promised land is the city of Jericho. And so they're coming, and folks, the, the city of Jericho was surrounded by walls. Now remember, we're talking ancient times, okay? It's not like you do like, okay, we'll just send in the bombers, we'll kind of loosen things up, then once the bombers are done, then we'll send the infantry in. You know, that's not how it happens. We don't send the tanks in and the infantry. If you had good walls around your city, boy, you could hold out for a very long time. And so, and so they're coming up on this city, and of course, you gotta realize, the nation of Israel, they're just a group of people. They're not an outfitted army. They haven't spent years building up their military. They haven't spent years uh, mining resources out of the ground that's around them to build weaponry. They don't have any of that. They've been a people that's wandering through the wilderness. They probably barely have any weapons. How are you gonna conquer Jericho? Well, that's what Joshua asked. And so he comes to God and God says, hey, Joshua, I've got the plan. Here's how we're gonna defeat Jericho. So Joshua, can you just imagine Joshua? He's coming in, he's all excited. Okay, okay, we're ready for the plan. Lord, what do you want us to do? How are we gonna conquer the city of Jericho? Okay, and so God says, all right, you ready, Joshua? I'm ready, I'm, I even got my notepad. What are we gonna do? And so God says, all right, I'm going to take the armies out, take the armies out. I want, you to, I want you to get them lined up, get them lined up, and I want you to walk all the way around the walls one time, around the walls one time, then what? Go home and get lunch, I don't know, you know, uh, or something like that. Okay, I'm not, being di- not trying to be disrespectful, but in essence, God says, that's all you gotta do. Can you imagine Joshua maybe thinking, walk around the walls? Okay, well, you know what he did? You know, that would seem like a very bizarre thing. You would think that weapons would need to be involved. You would think that stealth and strategy would need to be involved. But you know what Joshua began to do? He said, you know what? If this is what God said to do, I'm gonna trust him that he's gonna know how, to, how it's gonna happen. And so you know what he does? Can you imagine Joshua coming in front of his, his men saying, okay, guys, everybody listen up, all right? So shh. we're gonna have, um, the men are gonna get together in our, all our squads and everything and things, battalion items, and we're gonna all march around the walls. You see the officers there like, then what? Well, then we're going to go get lunch, you know? And that's all that we're going to do for, for the whole day, for the whole day. That is what God said. And so they go out and they march around the walls. Nothing happens. They go home and get lunch. So what happens? Day two. Here comes Joshua back. All right, Lord, what's the battle plan for day two? All right, you got your pen? I got my pen. All right, so, so here's what's going to happen. All right, I'm ready. All right, so you're going to take your men out. Take my men out. You're going to march around the walls one time. March around the oh, walls. Sounds like yesterday. March around the walls one time. Then what? That's it. And you know what Joshua did? He obeyed. All right, all right. He walked around the walls another time. Why would Joshua obey what seems like such a foolish command? Here it is. He trusted God that God was gonna give the victory. 
That whatever method that God had said, God was the one who was going to be given the victory. And so day three, day four, day five, day six, everything was the same. They take their army out. They march around the walls one time. The people of Jericho must have thought, I don't know, maybe they're, maybe they're like training for a, I don't know, maybe they're just getting people out to get a walk. Maybe it's like a, a new diet and exercise program they're doing in Israel. I don't know. Why are they marching around our walls? But then the seventh day comes. Here comes Joshua. All right, Lord, what's, what's the battle plan for today? And God says, it's going to be different today. Oh, boy. And so you see Joshua with his notepad out. All right, what are we going to do? All right, you're going to get your armies out. Arms out. You're going to march around the walls. Oh, boy. March around the walls. And God said, I want you to march around the walls seven times today. And he said at the, and God said at the end of seven times, once you've marched around the wall seven times, he said, I want you to shout for the Lord has given you the city. Okay. So you know what Joshua did? He did exactly as God said. You know why? Because he trusted God that God was going to give him the victory. What did the nation of Israel do? They went out to the city of Jericho. They marched around the walls seven times, and the men shouted, and guess what happened? The walls came tumbling down. Can you imagine being that soldier who's out there, and you're just like, and you're standing there, and then you go and march around seven times, and you go, huh, or whatever noise you may, they made. Who knows what they said? And then all of a sudden, the walls fall down. And it's like, so can we go? Or like, what are we supposed to do? You know, how you, you've never seen a victory like this before. And you know what God did was God did a miracle. God did a miracle and allowed these walls to come down and God gave victory where the people of God would have thought there's absolutely no way that God could bring us through. Well, how come God gave him victory? Because the people of God depended on God to give him victory. Young people, let me tell you something. Some of you think that getting victory over sin depends on you. It's all laid on you. And if you can just um, memorize enough verses, and if you can just uh, attend church enough times, and if you can just read, uh, read at least five to 12 chapters in the Bible a day, and if you can at least put on enough effort that you're gonna be able to see victory in your life over sin. Folks, dependence doesn't even come on those things, even though those are very good things. The dependence for victory has got to be placed on God himself. For God is the one, listen, young people, God can enable the weakest of the weak of you to overcome sin in your life. There is no sin that Jesus cannot overcome because he was tempted in all points like as we are. Jesus experienced every temptation like us. Yet guess what? The Bible says he was without sin. In other words, Jesus had so much strength that he could overcome every single time that he was tempted throughout his entire life. Can I tell you something? That's whose strength I need. Because guess what? People want to say, well, you know, I feel like, you know, I'm just going to kind of do the best I can. And I'll just, I'll work real hard at trying to get victory in my life. And whatever I can't do, I'll just trust Jesus to kick in whatever I can't do. Folks, that's foolish. That's why God says, even over in chapter four, he says that if you want to see this victory and know the land of rest, he says, you've got to cease from your own works. He says, you've got to stop trying to do this thing yourself. And if you would let God, if you'd start putting your trust on God, and when the temptation comes, instead of saying, okay, I gotta make this happen, I gotta do right now, I'm gonna do right, I'm gonna do right, I'm gonna do right, even if it hurts. Well, never mind, I just failed, you know? Instead of doing that, why don't we start saying, God, if you don't give me strength, I'm gonna fall again. God, empower me. God, give me your strength. God, give me your victory. And watch out. God may bring down some walls that you never thought would come down. And you know, it's, it's neat even, not only, of course, is the land of rest, a land of uh, victory, but it's also a land of blessing. You know what God started doing? God started doing miracles. 
As Joshua and his armies began to go through the land of Israel, oh my goodness, they started seeing victories and they started seeing miracles happen. Can I tell you, one of my favorite miracles in the entire Bible is actually in kind of this, uh, the, the area of Joshua over there because um, one of my favorite miracles is the one, Joshua, he's in the midst of a battle as they're trying to take over Canaan. And as he's, uh, as he's in the midst of this battle, he realizes that if the sun goes down, his men are not gonna be able to complete the battle. And if they can't complete the battle the next day, they're probably gonna end up getting routed. They've got to complete it that day. But the sun's going down, there's not much daylight. So what does Joshua do? He puts his dependence on God and says, God, please make the sun stand still. Now look, it's cool, people rising from the dead, um, you know, Jesus walking on water, I think the coolest miracle that I can think of in the Bible, in my, just for me, in my opinion, is when Joshua asked God to make the sun stand still, God literally froze our solar system and held all things in place. Why? Because one person had depended on him. God literally moved heaven and earth to give a man a blessing and victory in his life. Let me tell you something, guys. God can use you to do, see some miracles happen. I'm not talking about maybe stopping the solar system. You know what would be an incredible enough miracle is if you actually, by you telling someone about Jesus, they might actually bow their head and ask Jesus to be their savior. Can I tell you something? God could use you. Oh, yes, he can. You say, oh, well, I, I just, I don't have a whole lot of skill. I don't know if I really can. There's your self-dependence coming out again. If you start depending on God, look out. Because he can do incredible, incredible miracles with you. He could do incredible things. God's desire is to bless you and to use you. Notice we're not saying that he's gonna bless you like he's just gonna load you up with money. Rather, God would love to do miracles in your life. He'd love to see you get victory over a lifelong temptation. I'm gonna tell you what, that would be a big enough miracle in and of itself if some of you actually got victory over some temptation that's been after you for days, weeks, and years. I'm gonna tell you what, if you would actually switch your dependence, stop depending upon yourself and start depending on Jesus to give you the power to overcome your sin, look out. Because what God's about to do is gonna be really profound. And so he says, go at it. He says, go at it in my strength. You know, the Canaanites, the Canaanites in all these battles, they weren't scared of Israel. They were scared of Israel's God. Because Israel's God was so incredibly powerful and folks in the same way, we have a God who can enable us. I love how later on in Hebrews 4.14, it talks about, how, uh, about Jesus, how it says that he is not some high priest that cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but rather it says in chapter four, verse 15, that he was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. So verse 16 says, let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace so that we may obtain mercy, here we go, and find grace to help in our time of need. You know, God says his throne is a throne where you come in prayer. Listen, the throne room of God is not a place to just bring a bunch of random diseases that you, you're like, I don't know who sister so-and-so is. She has this random disease, God, I don't know. Please bless her. Like, it's, that's okay. And I'm telling you what, the throne room of God is also open for you to run and say, God, I need your power. Because if I don't have your power, I can't love these people. If I don't have your power, I'm gonna stumble to lust again. Lord, if I don't have your power, I'm gonna keep on staying angry. Lord, if I don't have your power, I can never give up this music. Lord, if I don't have your power, I'm never gonna be able to put this, uh, put this uh, movie series away. Lord, if I don't have your power, I'm never gonna be able to overcome this or that. Folks, the throne room of, the throne room of God is open for us to come moment by moment, day by day, every time we need power to overcome. I'm gonna tell you what, when you finally start experiencing victory and blessing in your life, 
That's what God calls rest. So final question. We know what rest is. It's victory and blessing in your life. We know how do we get there. It's by dependence, depending on on God. So number three, let's ask this question. Why don't people enter into rest? Why doesn't every Christian experiencing victory and blessing? Well, let's start with the simple, okay? The simple answer is, of course, that, um, uh, you know, if the way you enter into rest is by depending on God to give you the power you need for victory and blessing. So that's what gets you there. What do you think keeps you from there? Well, self-dependence, depending upon yourself. And, you know, you, we can even see this in the land of Israel as they were invading, coming into Canaan, is things were going so great, and then they came up on this city called Ai, or I, however you want to pronounce it. Tiny little town. Tiny little town. And as they tried to come at this town, I mean, it, was, it, would, be, it would be almost like, like if uh, some invading army came in and we had moved all of our forces to, uh, like to Charlotte to, to push back this invading force and we had a big victory at Charlotte and uh, then all of a sudden uh, the forces came down uh, as we were trying to, um, or let's say we were the invaders. We were coming in and we came, we fought off the armies at Charlotte. You know, we pushed back the mighty army of Charlotte. Then we came down to Lattimore, North Carolina. And we're like, oh, it's just Lattimore. We can beat them off. And then Lattimore beat us. We would say, what happened? You know, this is just, this ain't right. What in the world went on? You're in Lattimore right now. Okay, so if you didn't know, that's where you are right now. There's not a whole lot of stuff around here. There's probably more cows than people around here. So, um, uh, so, there's, um, so, so if you were to come into that, we would say, what in the world happened? Same thing happened with Israel. They had conquered this big old city. I mean, this thing had gone so well. So then why all of a sudden did they fail at this little town of Ai? How did it happen? Well, remember, Hebrews 3.19 tells us, so we see that they could not enter in. Why couldn't they enter rest? Because of unbelief. The people would, at Kadesh Barnea, the people refused to trust God that God could give them victory in the land, right? So they refused to trust God. So, um, so can I ask this? Why did the people get to the point where they no longer trusted God? What drove them to the point that they had this heart of unbelief? They stopped depending upon God. Look at chapter three, verse number 12. The Bible says this. Take heed, brethren. So he's talking to Christians. He says, Christians, take heed. Lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief. So he says that lack of dependence on God, trusting God. He says, watch out. This thing will creep up on you. This self-dependence will creep up on you and it will chain you. He says, an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. Then he says, but exhort one another daily. In other words, keep after one another. Watch out for one another about what? While it's still called today, here it is, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Do you know why all of a sudden these people of God Stop depending on God. And can we say, you know why all of a sudden they saw defeat, such as that AI? It's because they allowed sin into the camp. And that sin, as verse 13 says, uh, beware lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. You know what will hamper you and will cut, I mean, just hamstring you and cut you down so that you will not experience the victory and the blessing that you seek from God? It's when you let sin deceive you, and then harden you. You know what sin does in the idea of deceive? The word deceive, it's the idea of to trick someone or to lie someone. You know what sin does with us young people? Sin lies to you, and it'll tell us one of two things. One, it'll tell you, you can't live without this sin. 
It'll say, listen, your dad hurt you, be bitter. You can be angry at him. <laughs> Goodness knows, if you ever stop being angry at him, boy, that's just gonna mess up your life. You, you deserve this, you deserve to be bitter. And you think you can't do without it. Some of you, th- some of you are so tangled in pornography or in lust and the things you view on TikTok and your reels and the stuff you view is just so morally degrading. And the devil lies and says, you're gonna need this. This is what will make you happy when you're hurting. This is what will give you pleasure when you're down. The devil lies and says, you need this. Or maybe it's, uh, maybe it's I don't know, maybe it's bad friends. Maybe it's a boyfriend or girlfriend that you shouldn't be having. You think, oh man, but if I break up with so-and-so, there's no one else gonna date me. And the only way to keep that boyfriend or girlfriend is to do some ungodly stuff. Sin has done a successful job of lying to you to make you think you need sin in order to, like, in order to enjoy life. Sin has lied to you. It has deceived you. And notice what it says. Is it also says, uh, not only does it lie to us to make us think we can't live without it, but sin also lies to it and makes us think you'll never overcome it. Look at you. You're just a weak person. Which, by the way, we are. But our God is very powerful. And he says we can have his strength. But sin lies to us and says, stop trying to overcome anger. You're never gonna do it anyway, so why try? Stop trying to love your, stop trying to love your mom or your dad because you'll never be able to do it anyway. Stop trying to, um, uh, to, stop trying to um, look at pure and clean, right stuff because you're never gonna be able to do it anyway. And sin lies to us and makes us think that we need it or that we cannot overcome it. And so he says, beware lest you be deceived by sin, that you be um, hardened, he says, by the deceitfulness of sin. Because once sin has deceived you, young people, it will start to harden you. Young people, some of you, don't even realize it's happening, but you, plenty of you in this room, you're a Christian and sin has begun to harden some of you. Some of you are in so deep into pornography, you don't even realize how it is changing you, scarring you, and damaging you. And it's begun to harden some of you so that you don't care no more. Young people, before the hardness takes over, why don't you run in repentance to God and ask his forgiveness? Some of you, it might be anger and it might be bitterness. Someone has hurt you. And the only logical step you can think of is to harbor anger, resentment, grudges, and bitterness. Because sin makes you think, oh, well, you deserve this because that's what they did to you. You deserve to be angry and bitter and, har- and, and hateful and hold grudges. After a while, young people, that sin, after it has successfully deceived you, it is going to harden you and it will change who you are. It will chew you up and it will spit you out. Some of you, man, you've been listening to so much filth through your earbuds. There is so much filth that you pump through in the music you listen to. You don't even realize how some of that stuff is starting to harden you against God. But it successfully deceived you. It has deceived you and said, hey, it's okay. You can be a Christian and still listen to this. You can be, still be a Christian and take part in this. And it's deceived you and it's beginning to harden you. Maybe it, uh, maybe it has to do with um, the friends you, ha- you hang out with. 
Maybe you hang out, some of you hang out with the wrong crowd, and especially some of you do it against your parents' wishes. You know what sin has done? It's lied to you. It says, oh, you're gonna need these friends. No one else is gonna wanna be friends with you. You don't trust God that God could bring you the right kind of friends, and because sin has deceived you, and you keep doing it over and over. Young people, it's gonna start to harden you. It's gonna change you. That blessing you want, that way you want to serve God. Young people, if you won't give up sin, that sin is going to warp you and change you till you want nothing more to do with God. I know you're not there yet. Trust me, it comes. And it escalates as you become an adult if you will not come clean with God about your sin. Maybe it is a boyfriend or a girlfriend that sin has lied to you and said, oh, if you're gonna keep this boyfriend and girlfriend, you're gonna have to get physical with them. You're gonna do all this kind of stuff with them that you know, that you know is wrong. But listen, this is the only way you're gonna have a boyfriend and girlfriend. No one else is gonna want you. Sin has successfully deceived you and now you're becoming hardened to doing sinful things in the dark where no one knows. Listen, some of you, sin is hardening you. When are you gonna repent of your sin? Do it before it hardens you even more. We just allow these things to just have, just have their way with us. Maybe it's in the realm of, of authority. You know, we've all got authority in our lives. And maybe you are so used to disrespecting authority. Some of you, that is like all you do. Your parents, your teachers, basically anyone who's in charge, you challenge them all day long. You show disrespect and dishonor for your authorities. Young people know this. Sin has lied to you and said, oh, you can do that if you want to. Do whatever you want. Sin's lied to you and it's succeeded at it. It's gonna harden you and warp you into something that you never wished you were gonna be. And it will mess up your relationship with Jesus and change you into something you wish you were not. Some of you, my goodness, it's the TV that you're watching, the videos that you scroll through, the YouTube history that you have, these sins, they have lied to you and said, you want this, and this is better for you. And Jesus says, no, you want victory, blessing. You want rest. But sin says, no, 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 you don't want rest. You want sin. And you've listened to it and let it lie to you, and now it's beginning to harden you. Listen, young people, before it hardens you anymore, come to the throne of grace. You know what I love about Hebrews 4.16 is it says that the, in Hebrews 4.16, it says, let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace. The first thing it says is that we may find what? Mercy. You know what mercy is? It's God's forgiveness. It's a forgiveness that we don't deserve. You know what's the great thing about God? is that he knows, Christian, he knows how deep you've gone. He knows how many times you have offended him. He knows how many times you have hurt him. He knows how many times you have willfully broken his laws, and he still is willing to forgive you. Now that is something we don't see around us. Our God is not like our parents. Our God is not like other people. Our God is different in that he is mightily willing to forgive Listen, young person, if you're willing to come clean, not with me, but with God, about some sin in your life, I'm gonna tell you what, that is the pathway towards rest. If you won't clear out the sin first that you know is there that's been deceiving you and hardening you, forget about seeing victory, forget about blessing because we have gotta clean out the sin that is in our lives first. Are you in the land of rest? You seeing victory and blessing? It's, maybe it's just simply because you've been so self-dependent, you didn't realize you were supposed to be God-dependent. But I'll tell you what, some of you, some of you gotta unload the truck today before sin kills you 
warps you and hardens you beyond recall. Will you come clean with God tonight? Because he says, you can come to my throne of grace. It's a place of mercy and it's a place of grace to help in your time of need. So let's